0: There we go. Our speaker this afternoon is Jonathan Brown, uh, who has rather extraordinary uh, qualifications. He is one of the very few PhDs at the University of Texas who has gone ahead to become a member of the uh, department. He studied under Tom McGann, who by all uh, recognition was one of the foremost uh, uh, historians of uh, Latin America. He also has the distinction of having studied under Walt Rostow, but in the capacity of an economic historian rather than of uh, Vietnam. Uh, (laughs) Jonathan is the author of several books, and his most recent one is Cuba's Revolutionary World, and this has recently been published by uh, Harvard University Press. His other books include a socio- socio-economic history of Argentina, uh, oil and revolution in Mexico, and Latin America: A Social History of the Colonial Period. I started to say that there are other anonymous uh, publications. I hope I <laughs> pronounced the word okay. <laughs> no, it has a new pronunciation. <laughs> uh, And so Jonathan, we're very glad to have you. This is one of the uh, rare occasions in which we do stretch out to Latin America in which of course there was a very great uh, British uh, influence, not only in the Caribbean, uh, but throughout the uh, continent, uh, the Falklands of course, but also the building of the railways and so on in Argentina. Uh, In preparation for this session, I reread Uh, Graham Greene's Our Man in Havana which stands up very well. It's a very uh, uh, funny uh, novel and I think it's one of the best that Graham Greene has written. Uh, You'll recall the uh, the principal figure uh, has been recruited by the British intelligence service uh, to report on what's going on in Cuba and the, uh, the person Uh, happens to be a vacuum cleaner seller. And at one point, the chiefs of staff in MI6 saying that these uh, pictures of the uh, installations of missiles and so on have a strange resemblance to vacuum cleaners. (laughs) Uh, And I I hope that Jonathan will begin by uh, saying just a few words about uh, Graham Greene.
1: Well, first of all, thank you very much for introducing me. You gave me a wonderful introduction, included all of my old professors, so that people can date when I got my PhD. (laughs) Very convenient for them. Well, um, I've read every single book that Graham Greene wrote on Latin America, and he's traveled uh, quite a few places. Uh, There was Travels with My Aunt. There was the Honorary Council. There was uh, one of the first ones, I think, was uh, The Power and the Glory about Mexico in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, there, the comedians, uh, Haiti. Did I miss any? Yes, the, the what? The one about um, Panama. The one about Panama? Oh, that's correct. This is, why, did, why didn't I remember that? My next project act- actually is on Panama, General Torrijos. And it turns out that Graham Greene was a great friend of uh, Omar Torrijos, the dictator of, of Panama. That is the dictator of Panama before he was, um, he was succeeded by another dictator who was not as nice. And um, Graham F- Greene nice. did not, did not uh, befriend him. But... Um, as a matter of fact, Graham Greene actually was at the was attending at the invitation of Omar Torrijos the signing of the Panama Canal Treaty with President um, uh, Jimmy Carter with President Jimmy Carter in 1977. My wife is sitting back there, prompting me with the names. Thank you very much. Yes. So, if I hesitate on a name, you know I'm. <laughs> I'm getting it from my wife. <laughs> something very interesting about this was not only the, um, the, the parts of a vacuum cleaner that were sent back to um, MI5 and got them all interested. They thought at first, or they, were, uh, they perceived it at first, to be a secret weapon, something along the line of a missile. and. Graham Greene was there in 1957 I figure this book first uh, first printing of this book was in 1958 so he must have been there in 1956 1957 gathering material going to the places that appear in the book and so it's very recognizable he does not mention Fidel Castro even though Fidel Castro was with the guerrilla band in the Sierra Maestra. He mentions the Sierra Maestra in the eastern part of the island and that the guerrilla bands are operating there, but he doesn't mention the name of Fidel Castro. So in 1957, Fidel Castro was just a minor part of the revolution. He didn't come into his own until 1958, and then he dominated the revolution, and it's mainly because The reason that he was able to consolidate the revolution so quickly is that all of his partners in the revolution had died off by that time. He was the only one who survived. And he practically inherited the revolution uh, on the first day of January, 1959. And Graham Greene would have been wonderful if Graham Greene had been there when when the guerrillas came in uh, down the Malecon, which is the the Oceanside um, Boulevard in Havana. Uh, the other thing that I noted out of here is that he did borrow liberally from what was happening in the during the revolution inside of of Havana, where he probably spent most of his time, although I, I realize now that he also went down to the city of Santiago, which is on the opposite uh, end of the island, and spent some time there because he describes uh, The the hotel he was in, which still exists there. Um, And there's so much that is familiar about what he describes for Havana. And the reason is that Havana has not changed in the last 60 years. It looks like it did on the day that Fidel Castro rode in uh, on the back of an army tank uh, to take power on the first day of January 1959. Nothing has changed. The skyline looks exactly the same. Uh, the city is much more shabby today than it was back then. It was fairly well kept up. The 1950s is, was a good time economically for for uh, Cuba and so uh, the several new buildings were built in the 1950s which still exist in uh, and dominate the skyline really. It, but all the rest of it, all the rest of it, looks exactly the same as it did back then. Uh, there is one. This this kind of proves a maxim that people in Havana uh, uh, are saying these days. Um, you recall the book by Lenin: um, "Imperialism, uh, imperialism is the last stage of capitalism." Well, they're saying uh, in Havana right now that underdevelopment is the last stage of socialism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and largely because uh, the economy of the country is has recovered from the loss of um, the patronage of the Soviet Union. Uh, along about 1990, they lost that patronage when the uh, the uh, communist empire collapsed uh, practically overnight. Um, a couple of other things too about this book. So I'm—I guess what, what am I doing? I just uh, published a book myself on Cuba. I should be talking about that, right? <laughs> um, he borrowed liberally about what was happening inside of Havana at the time. There was a one of the. Uh, chief characters and probably the most prominent uh, Cuban uh, character in the book is uh, Captain Segura. Captain Segura uh, is known as the Red Vulture uh, because he was engaged in torturing and and killing um, young people who are involved in the revolution inside of Havana. Castro escaped this because he was in the mountains of the Sierra Maestra where Captain uh, Segura and hit the person who is really uh, Supposed to be Captain Segura his name was Colonel Ventura Segura Ventura And he was known not as the red vulture, but as the white angel of death It is because He uh, took off his um, white linen suit. He always dressed in a white linen suit with a coat jacket. And he took that off when he went in to torture people. You can understand why. Um, There are some other things. He was thrown into jail in Santiago. That is uh, Wormold, the, the character. here. And by the way, what kind of name is Wormold? This is a good? Is this, did he make up this name, or is this a good British name? Wormo, That's the character who uh, was the salesman.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> the, the vacuum cleaner salesman. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, not, I think he made up this name.
0: Yeah. No, he didn't.
1: He didn't make this up. No. Okay. Yep. So that's a real.
0: Absolutely. So it's okay. normally with an A rather than an O, but it's the same. Yeah. And it's often a surname, but it's not an uncommon name. It's a surname. Okay. I know two people with that. Yeah. Yeah. Two. Unrelated. <laughs>
1: In your family. No. Oh, I'm sorry. No. no. I, not. I, I was crude to bring that up. Um, I guess I'm here because there is one small a role that, that Great Britain played in the Cuban Revolution besides uh, sending one of their, their most famous uh, novelists over there before the revolution was completed. Um, and that is that the, the government of Great Britain never joined the United States diplomatic boycott of Cuba. It's for sure in the 1960s that between both President Kennedy and President Johnson that the United States was able to get every country of Latin America to break diplomatic relations with Cuba um, because Cuba was exporting its revolution to the rest of Latin America. They were training guerrillas to go back to their home countries to fight and uh, in, in guerrilla outbreaks occurred in Venezuela. Uh, in fact, uh, the ones in Venezuela lasted for 10 long years. The, Cuba put in a lot of money into it and a lot of arms and training for the Venezuelans. They were so adamant about getting Venezuela to join the revolution with them because they were dependent upon imports of petroleum. So they singled out, Castro did himself, singled out Venezuela. Now, is it, t- it turned out later on that, that Cuba got Venezuela anyway. And something is very interesting about Venezuela. Venezuela today is, as you know, probably the worst economic performance. It's in uh, practically in free fall with about a thousand percent, um, a thousand percent um, uh, devaluation of the money. How can people live through that and they're doing a very bad job of living that way and therefore thousands of people are every week trying to get out of the country? And the one interesting thing here is that in the 1970s, there were a number of military takeovers in Latin America. Practically every country of South America, save for two countries there, had military governments. And the militaries took over uh, uh, for 21 years in Brazil, for example. The military was in power. And they came to power when um, the civilian regime had reached a certain level of inflation. And that level was about 600%. So I'm asking myself, this is when the militaries, in the past at least, would take over a government that seems to be failing economically. Why is Venezuela at this present time immune from uh, a military takeover? And I asked this question of a Venezuelan graduate student in the department who's a student of mine. He told me it's because the the military has uh, all the tourist trade, and they're very big in the economy. They own about half of all the economic assets in the country. Now, this is actually the Cuban model. This is what Fidel Castro put together in the 1960s to retain the loyalty of his own army. Um, So for example, when you travel to to Cuba, and I hope you do, and by the way, pick up uh, a couple of these shirts while you're there, the the Guayabera shirts, because they can come in handy around here in (laughs) Texas. but he involved, that is, Fidel Castro involved the army in running the economy. So you will see when you go there, or you probably won't know this, but all the companies that deal with the economy, the tourist economy, are the hotels, the car rentals, they all belong to the army and generals within the army. So this idea of keeping the loyalty of your uh, military by involving them in the economy and owning all of the best assets in the country, this was picked up by uh, Hugo Chavez, the, the man who socialized uh, the country uh, and, and started the Chavista party, which is still in power even though Chavez is, um, am I, Getting away from Cuba? Not really. (laughs) Chavez uh, was one of uh, Castro's best friends. He would go to Cuba quite often to get the advice of uh, the maximum leader of the revolution in Latin America. Um, He was always an honored guest. He dedicated a great portion of free um, supplies of crude oil. He built for Cuba the the latest um, refinery, which unfortunately doesn't work very well. It's like a like a, a Russian refinery. It doesn't quite measure up to first world standards. But anyway. Um, he helped the economy of Cuba in, in the 1990s and the uh, early 20th century, uh, because he had his um, control of the flow of oil to, to Cuba. But he believed so much in Cuba that he, when Fidel Castro told him that we have the best doctors in the world, that's where he went. He went to Cuba when he developed a cancer. And it was in Cuba that he died, because um, he would not go to any other uh, cancer doctor. Uh, I want to say something about my book. Do you mind if I do that? All right. Here's here's the book. I could pass this around. I don't have any copies to sell. Uh, you can. You can uh, buy this. However, uh, it's published at Harvard University Press. It only costs twenty-five bucks. Really? What? what twenty-five. Yeah, it's six uh, six hundred pages long. But it reads so well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've read it several times, and it <laughs> it's like Graham Greene. It holds up with age. Yeah. <laughs> I only published this last year, so there's plenty of copies uh, available. The one thing that I was, uh, that I remarked once I got into the study of the Cuban Revolution is how powerful the Cuban Revolution was in international affairs. When Fidel Castro took over Cuba and consolidated power there after, in in, uh, 1959, Cuba only had Six million people. They had never been um, very prominent in world affairs. The Cubans um, simply were not on the map as far as Europe. And it was known for producing sugar, sure enough, and some wild nightlife, some of which is described by Graham Greene, but not in my book. So just forewarning you about that. Um, But you go over to the LBJ Library. You go to do some research, as I did, and Lenora went with me as well. We went to the JFK Library, and there are reams and reams of paper just on Cuba. You couldn't find anything on Cuba before 1959, but from 1959 on, In the 1960s, um, in the presidency, uh, particularly of JFK, it was the number one foreign problem of the United States. That's why it generated so much um, documentation. And it's pretty heavily documented, even in uh, LBJ's time. It's probably second only to Vietnam among the the foreign (coughs) documentation that you can find there. Um, Why was this? Well, this was because when Fidel Castro came to power, the CIA ignored him. They ignored Fidel Castro because he wasn't thought to have been, while he was fighting a guerrilla warfare, he wasn't thought to have been a communist. As a matter of fact, he wasn't a communist when he fought the revolution in the Sierra Maestra and there were plenty of studies there were people connected with the CIA who were with the the embassy in Havana they did make trips down to the Sierra Maestra to question people down there but the thing was that fidel castro had the support of the middle class so he never professed he never spoke like a communist he didn't use Marxist-Leninist um, words, uh, concepts. Uh, his, he he spoke like, he spoke like, and he s- smoked quite a bit too.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: but he spoke um, like a, a nationalist a middle-class nationalist who speaks uh, of loving the nation, the patria, and the heroes of the wars of independence like José Martí and all the rest. So he certainly did not pretend to be a socialist, and I believe he was not. So the CIA goes uh, into Santiago very shortly after, uh, in um, 1958, probably uh, around the time that this book was published by Graham Greene. And they queried all of the people in the middle class and they were solidly behind Fidel Castro. He was their man, he had grown up and went to school in Santiago de Cuba. Uh, he went to private school like all the people of the better-off classes do, and they supported him. This was his revolution, and the reason was uh, um, there was a bit of racism, racism uh, involved here. The only non-white uh, person ever to be chief of state in Cuba was Florencio Batista. He was the man who was the dictator that Fidel Castro was fighting against. So the dictator, Florencio Batista, was not really well-respected among the middle class, and therefore the middle class very thoroughly um, backed Fidel Castro. And it was only after he began to consolidate power in the first couple of months That he began to court the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc. This is why um, he is to become a great kind of public enemy here in the United States. The other thing that bolstered this this idea that he was a danger to the United States was the fact that all the middle class who had been backing him in the revolution in the 1950s, in the 1960s, they emigrated and went to Miami. And there they organized all matter of of groups to uh, influence the United States policy in Latin America and they became Mercenary troops for the CIA trying to overthrow the government of Cuba and Fidel Castro. As long as I'm about this, I'd like to talk a little bit about the role of Great Britain. Great Britain somehow. The British are somehow in the title of my talk, are they not? Yes.
0: What is the title of my talk? Please remind me. Uh, Castro's Challenge to Britain and the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Wow.
1: I didn't know I put it that way. (laughs) Because while all of Latin America were obeying the presidents Kennedy and, and LBJ, to break diplomatic relations with Cuba. Great Britain did not. As a matter of fact, neither did some of the other great powers of Europe. Uh, Spain, probably not one of the great powers of Europe in the 1960s, but Spain, uh, even though General Franco, you'd think that if anybody in Europe is going to break relations with, with uh, a, a Cuba that is, quickly becoming a communist state, it would be Franco. But Franco never gave up. He continued to have relations, uh, diplomatic relations with Cuba, France. France under de Gaulle also did. So the great powers in the center of Europe uh, uh, retained trade, Not that they traded as much as the United States did or then later on, the Soviet Union, but they retained trading privileges uh, with Cuba all throughout the 1960s at the time that the United States was organizing a big boycott. Um, As a matter of fact, Great Britain uh, and British ships, British merchant vessels, uh, occasionally came under fire. From some of the mercenary troops that were sponsored and paid for by the CIA in the 1960s. You may have heard about fast boats and pirates of the Caribbean. Well, this is exactly uh, the sort of uh, Cuban, uh, anti Castro Cubans, who were given money by um, the CIA to buy arms and uh, buy fast boats, motherships. And then uh, circle around the island of Cuba and um, making raids on Cuba. The idea behind this, they were, known as the, um, they were known also as revolutionary groups. That is, every one of these groups to tie themselves into the, the middle class participation in the revolution in the 1950s that they say Fidel Castro stole, uh, every one of these anti-Castro groups had revolution in its name. The Revolutionary Front of, of the Escombray. Uh, and there were other names. Everybody, the Revolutionary uh, Rehabilitation, that was another um, mercenary group, another armed group. That, um, But the one thing is they were not effective. As a matter of fact, they, may, they became counterproductive, and this comes directly from the book. They became counterproductive because the action of these groups out of Miami gave Fidel Castro uh, an excuse to mobilize the population, to organize the militias, and to organize a group known as the Defenders of the Revolution that um, were, in fact, neighborhood watch groups throughout Cuba who kept their eyes on their neighbors for demonstrations of disloyalty to the state, to the revolutionary state, and to, to Fidel Castro. I, t- I was going to make a, a Trump joke. Probably I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. This is being recorded, and... Yeah. Um, anyway, Trump would have liked this group, um, but Ca- in other words, Castro was able to consolidate his power and eliminate his enemies from within the revolution, because of the activities of these armed groups sponsored by the CIA. And bringing the British back in here, I guess the challenge was that sometimes they attacked British shipping. There was one famous case during the presidency of, of John F. Kennedy in which the, um, the, one of these armed groups attacked a ship and shot it up, a British uh, merchant vessel. So they got a letter, uh, the United States got a letter from the British government uh, protesting uh, the CIA's groups operating out of Havana who were... Uh, somehow interdicting um, um, trade on the high seas, becoming pirates, you know. The worst case of this happened in 1964. 1964, of course, the election of November uh, 64 is when LBJ, who had inherited the uh, presidency of Kennedy uh, as vice president, and he was running, Uh, in November in order to win election in his own name. So you can understand how touchy he was by this incident. One of these armed groups out of Miami, actually, uh, they had a a base in uh, Nicaragua under the Samosas, another infamous dictator from (laughs) Latin America that was never visited by Graham (laughs) Greene. And they attacked a Spanish uh, merchant vessel. They shot it up badly, killed about um, uh, five officers on the watch. The, uh, at at night, they mistaken uh, they had mistaken this ship for a a merchant vessel of Cuba named the Sierra Maestra, over named after the the uh, place for the. Uh, the Revolution and Fidel Castro, but it was really the Sierra Aranz- uh, zuuza it's a it's a um, mountain chain in um, in Spain and it was a Spanish vessel, therefore this was piracy on the high seas. they disabled this vessel had to be towed into um, into uh, port, and there was a lot of diplomatic um, anger over this directed at the president of the United States. Of course, since the CIA was involved, everybody at the White House, including my uh, economic history professor, Walt Rostow, um, wanted to downplay this. And so they said, they're just good um, patriots. Uh, who have no connection and no direction from the CIA. That was, that was correct. There was no direction from the CIA. There was only financing from the CIA. <laughs> That's how they could buy the, all these, these weapons. Um, but Johnson then pulled the plug on that operation. He told the CIA to stop um, sponsoring groups from Miami, Um, and to shut them down. And anyway, he was beginning to move towards, uh, move the whole crusade uh, against uh, Cuba. He was moving the anti-communist crusade to Southeast Asia. Um, One other thing here, and that is that Great Britain, which sold some Leland buses in 1964, um, this became a big deal in the newspapers once again. Uh, the, uh, the administration here in Washington, D.C. was up in arms about how could the British do this when uh, deal with this communist state. And uh, of course, we were selling wheat to the Soviet Union. So I guess it was a perfectly rational sort of operation. Um, In a way, I think that this European, our allies in Europe, were much more important to us uh, as allies against the Soviet Union than Cuba was a threat to the United States. So uh, the (laughs) Kennedy and the Johnson administration tolerated their continued diplomatic recognition of Cuba. And I think that the one uh, reason was that uh, the United States needed our allies in Europe in order to protect the one captive city uh, of capitalism, and that was West Berlin. Uh, The reason why JFK uh, pulled back the US fleet from Cuban waters during the Bay of Pigs In April 1961, uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion, as you know, was a brigade of Cuban-Americans who had signed up for training in Guatemala in order to invade Cuba. And they, too, were sponsored by the CIA. And this was a um, hush-hush project begun and then laid on the lap of, uh, of Kennedy by um, Eisenhower, by President Eisenhower. (coughs) This had worked once in Guatemala, 1954, when a few communists were known to be uh, working in the the, um, government of the country that was about to expropriate some land, unused land, belonging to the United Fruit Company, for whom uh, the New York uh, law, the New York law offices, that uh, in which the um, Dulles brothers were partners, and that law office in New York represented internationally the United Fruit Company. So. The CIA, under the direction then of Alan Dulles, decided um, and got the word from Eisenhower to send in the CIA and see if we can't undermine this uh, revolutionary government that was taking land away from foreigners. And it worked. There was a military revolt inside of the country And the uh, military revolt unseated the the revolutionary president, who was trying to uh, undertake land reform for the benefit of the landless peasants in Guatemala. This worked in Guatemala, but it didn't work in Cuba. Fidel Castro, and one of the reasons is that already Fidel Castro had learned the lesson of Guatemala because there was a young uh, Argentine doctor who was on his way uh, through Central America, and he was living for a while uh, in uh, revolutionary Guatemala. And he was there when the CIA cabal took place and unseated the revolutionary government of Guatemala in 1954. That was Che Guevara, or he was known later on as Che Guevara. So Che Guevara, when he met uh, Fidel Castro in uh, Mexico City, already told him about uh, one thing that we must watch out for is the CIA. But the fact that we had in Europe a number of countries who did not want to break relations with um, Cuba. This turned out also to be a source of information about what was happening inside of Cuba. Well, Lenore and I went to the the, uh, archive at Kew Gardens. Wonderful place to work. Great lunches and great (laughs) tea times. If you get a chance to do it, um, go do some research there. I will say that um, they they had uh, some influence and some cooperation out of their own embassies in there in order to to shunt to uh, the United States some intelligence reports. They didn't send them the juicy stuff. They did send them something every now and then. So it became a kind of convenient source paying back your powerful ally, the United States, by providing them some intelligence about things going on in Cuba. Um, And that's because the secret police in Cuba began to be organized by Soviet agents. The very first uh, KGB officer shows up in Cuba at the end, in the last months of 1959. I've got his picture in here. Alexander Alexiev shows up in 19 and immediately he goes to work for the the interior ministry and the the KGB had about five officers who were constantly supervising the work of the secret police in Fidel Castro's Cuba. Um, Therefore, uh by the time LBJ come, came to office, practically all of the sources of information that the CIA could collect from inside of Cuba had dried up, because all of the agents that the CIA ran in Cuba were picked up by the, um, the secret police. Um, so Getting back to um, the invasion, the United States Armed Forces did not back the invasion. That is, they did not send um, U.S. pilots, they did not send U.S. warplanes, they did not um, bombard uh, Cuba at this time with um, naval um, cannons. They backed away from protecting even those who um, the the Cuban Americans who had rushed ashore in April of 1961 at the Bay of Pigs. Um, the reason is that that West, um, West Berlin was simply much more important. They knew in 1961 that Khrushchev had expressed on several occasions support for Fidel Castro. He had even given Fidel himself a bear hug in the, um, in the United Nations. So it was common knowledge that, that uh, Cuba was becoming an ally of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union could, put, um, could attack or at least hold hostage to uh, protect Cuba from invasion from US military forces. And so all throughout the 1960s, at the time that we were the most uh, um, difficult uh, in maintaining our economic and uh, political boycott of the Cuban regime, the, um, the Europeans did not. And uh, I think that the real secret to that, and we've never used any U.S. military forces uh, against Cuba whatsoever. And I think that the reason is that the Allies were interested in protecting West uh, Germany, were interested in protecting, too, um, the West Berlin, which was inside of East Germany, from harm And this is why the United States modified its antagonism against uh, Cuba and relegated it to trade and to diplomatic boycott rather than all out US invasion of of Cuba with the United States Armed Forces. Thus the title. (laughs) The challenge to, to, to Great Britain, I I have no idea where that came from.
0: (laughs) But I had to have
1: Great Britain in the title.
0: Um,
1: A couple of reasons that I discovered why Cuba was so important in the 1960s. One, it was was a vulnerable time uh, in the Cold War. Sputnik had been launched... The Soviet Union had the biggest army in the world. They were thought to have all these tanks, and there was the the missile gap, the so-called missile gap that became part of the 1960s election. Um, It was believed in 1960 that they had more missiles than the United States did, even though Eisenhower knew better. He was not about to publicize that. So there was all this, for all of these reasons. Um, and, and then the fact that the Fidel Castro nationalized all of US businesses in the year 1960 with one fell swoop, nobody was willing then in 1960 to go to war over the, the loss of a few refineries of standard oil. All of the, um, the lands, the sugar lands owned by American companies, also were confiscated. And there was no kind of belligerence on the part of the United States. There was just continued kind of um, um, support for um, Cuban counter-revolutionaries in Miami. That was about it. Um, Here's another reason. The fact that there was this trade um, and political alliance between Cuba and the Soviet Union and also Red China. Uh, Chairman Mao was uh, got a visit from Che Guevara himself, or maybe I should say Chairman Mao himself got a visit from Che Guevara. And, um, became a a supporter of the Cuban Revolution, even though uh, there wasn't much trade that could be carried on between China and uh, and Cuba. Nonetheless, they did have political ties. And uh, so um, this made Cuba outsized um, in all of world affairs. As a matter of fact, you could say that Fidel Castro was the cause for the fall of uh, Nikita Khrushchev in 1964, just a year and a half after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which occurred in Cuba. And Cuba uh, was the, the one territory in um, all the world in which the major powers uh, were so close to come to war in the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. All of these are the reasons why Cuba became such a problem for the United States in the 1960s. And uh, Cuba also uh, carried great weight throughout the world. They eventually sent troops into to, to Africa at the end of the 1960s. Sixties and uh, a large numbers, several thousands of troops from the regular army were sent into Africa in the 1970s and the 1980s. they, For a country of six million people who adopted socialism because of the Cuban Revolution, um, Cuba carried great weight, and it still does. And I would say mainly because of opposition by the United States, which continues even today. Uh, Still, uh, if you get a chance to visit, I would suggest it. It's a really wonderful place. And um, believe it from the book by Graham Greene. Thank you very much.